0: Welcome back to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Lucas Stock, and with me, as always, is... Jens Nelson. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Come join us as we explore, discuss, and grow as followers of Christ. Um, Today's going to be a pretty exciting episode, I think. Um, uh... I've been
1: waiting, like, literally months to have this conversation, (laughs) and it's, it's finally come to fruition.
0: So before we get into that... How you doing man? what's What's been going on?
1: Oh man, I am doing pretty well. So we're at the very end of a week where my wife has been gone. Uh, so she left last Sunday. Wow. Today's Saturday, which is weird. We don't normally record at, on Saturdays. Yep. We also don't normally record at night and I know it's not dark outside yet, but it's getting there. Um, so that's kind of fun. But so yeah, I've, I've been mm-hmm. home all week without Hannah and that's just been so strange. Like it, it completely throws off my rhythm of You know what I do and when I do it and you know it's it's weird like I've some nights I've slept amazing some nights I have been unable to sleep Um, like it's just strange like one one of the nights this week I didn't go to bed till like almost one o'clock because like I just could not fall asleep but like another night I went to bed at nine and slept straight through the night Um, so I don't know maybe married people can resonate a little bit with that like what it's like when their
0: spouse leaves Um, it's a little strange it definitely is yeah. Especially for like a good chunk of time, like a solid week. Right. Compared to like, you know, a couple days here or there or whatever. I'm also. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was just going to say, I don't know about Wisconsin, but here it's picking up in heat and it's like, it's I'm just like sweating. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't been quite that bad, but for us, um, we don't have AC in. Like, we have window units. We don't have central air, so, like, certain parts of the house will get cool, and other parts, including our bedroom, which is, like, the hottest room in the house, just seems to just trap all the heat, and there's, like, no way to cool it down, so it's been pretty
1: pretty fun. Well, let me tell you this. So, we also only have window units. We live in a really old house, doesn't have central air um so hannah's parents let us borrow one of their it's not it's not a window unit it's actually like it sits in your apartment but it has like a tube that like attaches to your window i mean it has to still go out the window to like get the air and stuff um so it's a little weird but like we want a second one and we have a second one up in our attic um but here's the thing so we found out that we have bats in our attic And it is, it has been confirmed. So we had like our landlord come out with like a, not an exterminator (laughs) because like bats are protected or whatever, but like an inspect, Mm -hmm. an inspector to see if that's actually the case. And they're like, yep, you've got bats. So like, I'm like petrified, like kind of terrified to go up there and like (laughs) get it down because... Like, literally, my all this week, this is part of what's also been strange about Hannah being gone. Like, I can't tell if the cats are freaking out just because she's gone or if they hear the bats, like, at night. Because, like, they, oh. they, they, like, sit in front of the door that goes up to the attic. They're, like, every once in a while, they'll just go like this and, like, you know, look up at the ceiling. And I'm just like, what is going on? So, I totally get that. I'm, like... I actually had to close the door into our bedroom where we have our one AC unit because it's really loud, and I didn't want to turn it off. So like right now, I'm I'm feeling pretty sweaty. Oh, so I feel yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Bats would bats would scare me. Like, I would be scared of like getting a disease if like a bat bit yeah, me or something. Like rabies
1: or whatever. Yeah. Or COVID nineteen. I think that's how it spreads. <laughs>
0: Oh man! Anyway. <laughs> Walked right into that one. Speaking anyway, of, so on that crazy note, conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, today we are going to be talking about different views of the millennium. I don't know what we're exactly what we're going to title it. Like end
1: times prophecy, uh, biblical numerology, all those really great M- things.
0: M- millennials talk millennium. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. I, are we millennials? I yeah, think so. we, we I are like
1: know. at the. I, I am. I don't know if you are. I'm like at the very end
0: um yeah i don't know i if i always consider myself that because i feel like i don't know i just feel like we would meet like my year you know got lumped in with that even if it doesn't i don't know generations are weird what's the difference and, between? and
1: when you're on the edge you sort of probably like waver between the two a little bit anyway like you're not dead yeah. middle of like you know 1990 right. or whatever but
0: so weird. But anyway, anyway um, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about <laughs> views of the millennium, meaning um, end times. Not We're not talking about all things end times, but um, what does it mean in the book of Revelation when it talks about, in chapter 20, the thousand-year reign of Christ? Traditionally, people in theology and... Um, you know, biblical studies refer to that as the millennium. And there are different views of the millennium that different groups at different periods in church history have held to. It's not um it's not an uncontroversial issue. There's disagreement on what exactly that passage means as well as everything else in the book I mean, of Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> um, which probably makes sense if you've ever read parts of or all of Revelation, then you you know it's not exactly um it's not exactly a straightforward biblical book. Um, I don't know what's harder, it's... Leviticus
1: or Revelation. Every time I read both of those, I just, especially before, I had a,
0: I had a Sunday school class in the fall on Leviticus, and I have to say, I would now I would say Revelation would be harder. Leviticus oh, is just like, we should probably maybe we should we should talk about an episode on this, but like Leviticus is just like, Christology, sacrament, sacramental theology, like tying everything together it's such a better book than (laughs) than people give i thought it it was (laughs) yeah well that's
1: how i feel about revelation now like uh, you know we're gonna get into where i stand as far Mm -hmm. as my viewpoint and everything but after reading a couple of books and really studying up on this topic like i i I don't want to say that i understand (laughs) revelation but i have a greater appreciation for and i can better understand what is being communicated but i don't know maybe we should start where we think that some people have erred in the past so we'll talk about we're going to talk about all the main perspectives that people have today yeah but i think we're going to start with the ones that we might not necessarily agree with so if you want to kind of kick off with i don't know which one you want to start with
0: Yeah, that sounds good. I also i am now realizing that um, the fan that I have going to save me from this body of death that is <laughs> my sweaty self right now is going. And I thought about turning it off in case the mic picks it up, but that's not happening. So I'm just going to apologize in advance. <laughs> Sorry, if guys. This episode has a has a faint whirring sound. In Maybe the we background.
1: can edit out and post.
0: Maybe. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> that's on you. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So there are Traditionally, you know, three big views of the millennium called pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and ah-millennialism. Um, pre meaning before, post meaning after, and ah meaning none or without. But and it's we'll misleading get into it. a little
1: bit. We'll get into that.
0: Yeah. It's, all of the names are a little... There, there's more to it. You know, they, they're just sort of helpful, like, umbrella terms. Um, so there are more views... And there are going to be a diversity of, like, specifics within each category. Um, so we're going to give kind of like a flyover view of what the main points are, generally speaking, of all of these different views. So we're going to start with pre-millennialism. We'll, we'll We will probably be shortening because it's sort of a longish series of words. We'll probably say things like pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, rather mm-hmm. than making it harder on ourselves <laughs> since we're already saying a lot of words. Right. Um, but premillennialism or the pre mill position, um, is actually right off the bat, we're gonna divide it into two subcategories of historic premillennialism and something called dispensational premillennialism. So premillennialism, the pre refers to when does Christ return. So in the premillennial view both historic and dispensational, Christ is going to return the the Perugia, the, the the appearing, the the second coming of Christ, is going to happen before the millennium, which refers to this thousand year reign of Christ on earth. So pre um, premillennialism, historic premillennialism, basically follows this um, this series of of uh, this chronological um, pattern of history, so there's going to be worldwide evangelism, um, which is I, I I guess this is sort of where we would be now, where the gospel is sort of in the process of going out to the world. Um, it's not gone into all of the world; not everyone is under you know the the power of the gospel or whatever. Um, but it's this process of worldwide, widespread evangelism followed by um, the conversion of Israel. Um, maybe that's maybe that's like literally every every uh ethnic Jew is converted or, or just like the the overwhelming majority um but but Israel is converted to Christ. Um there is a period called the great tribulation at the end of which the antichrist, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness um appears. Um I I you know I don't know. There's, there's probably a variety of, of views of exactly what that means, whether we're talking about a political leader or maybe like some sort of cultural authority or leader. Um, or if you lived 300 probably... years
1: ago, it was the Pope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Depending on, yeah. I don't think any historic premillennialists would have said, that. well, maybe some would, but. Um,
1: That's, That's more on We'll get there.
0: Yeah. Um, there's the, a- after the appearing of the Antichrist at the end of the Tribulation, there is the Perugia, the return of Christ, at which point the dead saints will be resurrected and the dead and living saints at that time are transformed. They're glorified at that point. Um, The Antichrist is overthrown. Israel is returned to her former territory. And we're talking about like the geographic nation state, national Israel returned to, um, I I assume it's probably like the height of the ancient uh, Hebrew Monarchy, yeah, you know, in the Old Testament, whatever the former territory is, I'm not, I'm not 100 sure. I don't know if you know more. No, about it's, what it's, people it's, mean it's, by it's that. It's more
1: or less, yeah. The, 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 the land that was promised to Abraham, uh, you know, when, when, when God made a, a covenant with Abraham to provide a seed, um, a land to be a blessing. That, that when God makes covenants, that they're um, unconditional and eternal. So because He promised the land and Israel, you know. They technically inhabit the land, but they're you know they're, they don't fall under the umbrella of of Christianity or the church. That like one day, that this restoration is going to happen, this remnant is going to be restored to faith in Christ, um, but also in an established physical land.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and once that does happen, um, Christ is going to reign physically on this earth for one thousand literal years from Jerusalem. Hmm. Jerusalem, will, he, he, is, he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the Davidic line of, of the monarchy, um, which is, it, you know, exactly correct. <laughs> he is. <laughs> um, and so there is a, a literal 1,000-year reign where Christ is the, the political and spiritual ruler of all of the world this world, um, seated, you know, seated in Jerusalem. And at the end of that, there is um, a resurrection of the wicked, and then the final judgment. So that's sort of the timeline of historic premillennialism. Um, this view has has an extremely long history. It goes back to the early church. Um, I think it's I think it's Justin Martyr. He's one of who them, has yeah. some some premillennialism. Um, and, uh, also I've, I've read the, the, I haven't read it, but the epistle of Barnabas, mm-hmm. um, is a, is a document, an early church document that I've, uh, learned is, you know, expresses premillennialism. And, um, if you read church history or you read older accounts or, or you know, theological works, you're going to come across the term Kiliasm, Um, C-H-I-L-I-A-S-M which comes from the Greek word for a thousand so historically like if you read Reformation era writings or or earlier um, when people are referring to Kiliasm they're they're basically referring to more or less a premillennial view um, because that was distinguished with people who were not who didn't have a Kiliastic view because they didn't believe in this literal thousand year-long millennium reign of Christ on Earth, which we'll get to shortly. Um, a big piece of this view um, is, is a literal hermeneutic, a, a literal way of reading and interpreting Scripture, especially Revelation 20, um, which it might be helpful to read now. Okay, um, yeah, I'm I was going to read it that, later, but I can... Yeah. Let's pull it up um, real quick. I got or I it, have my Bible you know, handy. Maybe you don't read the whole thing, but but... but I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know the exact most helpful passage verses. It. But, but, the, so Revelation twenty, while he's flipping there, that's the passage where um, we read about the millennium, the thousand years, right? The, yeah. So, so yeah, go. I think reading that now will be helpful.
1: Yeah. Why not? Let's do it. So Revelation twenty says, "Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain." And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And I think we'll stop there for now. Cause the rest is um, mm-hmm. defeat of Satan, the judgment before mm-hmm. the great white throne. And then 21 goes into the new heavens and the new earth. It's, but, but right. that's more or less yeah. like the, the place where this millennium is found. This is the only place right. in all of scripture where it speaks yeah. of a thousand year period um, yeah. where, you know, at the end of time or whatever that this is happening. Um, So yeah, this is, this is where we find it.
0: Yeah. And I think even as, even as you, you read that, I I was, you know, picking out like the, the chronology there, you you can see where it comes from. It's not, it's not complicated of, you know, the Christ reigning for a thousand years, the the resurrection, you know, the judgment coming in the passages like this, the verses afterwards, like it's not complicated to see where the material comes from, um, and like I said, a a big focus of this view is is a a literal interpretation of that passage um, to explain what the millennium is and what the millennium looks like. Which is a so very that,
1: like noble thing to do to try to read scripture literally and faithfully. I think is you know worth noting. Like that's an important thing that we ought to do. Perhaps even, even if <laughs> I'm not saying I agree with that view, I'm just saying like when we're considering scripture, it's, you know, Mm -hmm. there are times where reading it literally is what we ought to do. However, this is apocalyptic literature, um, which is a genre that is very difficult to read literally.
0: (laughs) So that, and I mean, I guess, you know, even we're sort of showing our cards a little bit, you can kind of see we're not necessarily thrilled with historic premillennialism. Um, I don't even less
1: than that. I am, even less thrilled with what you're going to talk about next.
0: So, um, and again, I want to reiterate, this is uh, an overview of these, of these different positions. This this could be a series. This could be
1: a long series.
0: Yeah. We're not getting super in depth with the, the diving into the relevant passages. We, We will be looking at them, but, but we're not necessarily here to give the definitive exegesis of any, particular section of scripture Um, we're not here to cover all the details of each view Um, I guess it's worth noting um, I am pulling a lot from um, there is a I think this is an old version I don't know if they've updated it but Baker publishes an evangelical dictionary of theology it's edited by Walter A. Elwell um, I'm I'm pulling from that as well as the section on the millennial views in Robert Letham's um, systematic theology from last year that we often reference. On and I'll just say show. now,
1: so I don't forget, a lot of what I have to say comes from Sam Storm's book um, Kingdom Come. Uh, just while we're getting our sources out yeah. there.
0: Yeah, and I and I meant to sit, to mention that at the beginning, just to know if you want to um, see where we're getting our information from or dive into like some you know looking at some more detailed uh discussions Mm -hmm. um and let us know if you want to follow up because this is there's a lot here so moving on um dispensational uh premillennialism is the other sort of major variety of premillennialism so um dispensationalism is a it's broader than just a view of the millennium it's broader than just an eschatological view it's it's also a unique way of reading and interpreting a, a unique framework for reading and interpreting scripture, scripture in general. Yeah, not just uh, not just end times scriptures. Although a lot, a of, lot their, of you go ahead. I was going to say a lot of their theological distinctives really come out when you're talking about the end times, whether that's the millennium or or other aspects of it. Well, not um, only that, but like
1: even how millennial or how dispensationalism grew. I think it grew out mm. of end times, you know, eschatology and out of that blossomed the rest. They're like, Oh, so like now this makes sense and this makes sense. And this makes sense as opposed to just like having these other views. And mm-hmm. it just, like it, it's like eschatology, eschatology is almost like the ground floor for how
0: dispensationalists mm. do their theology. And so, if you are not familiar with dispensationalism as as a eschatological end times position or as a broader theological position, um, it is something that has taken, it, it's at this point it, over the course of the 20th century, it really, I don't want to say like took hold of, I don't think it's like this sinister plot, but like it, it really spread at a popular level amongst American Evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. If you have ever read or watched any of the movies, I guess, I haven't seen any of them, and I've only read part of the first book, but if you've ever read the Left Behind series, you know what dispensational, premillennial, end times theology is. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that because Left Behind is written as a theology book, but it's a series of fiction books set in the end times, written by dispensationalists, so that's the way that it unfolds. And maybe um, we should
1: note that we went to this school. I mean, Moody is very, very dispensational. The people who wrote that book are affiliated with Moody. So we, yeah, we, I we, mean, we ha- we're we not yeah. talking about this as uninformed people. We We were literally educated in this system.
0: And something that I have noticed in the past, but I really noticed when I was preparing for this episode that I wanted to bring up that I find just so fascinating, just from a historical perspective, is any time I've ever seen dispensationalism brought up in a um, a theological book, like a history book, church history book, or um, a systematic theology book or a theological dictionary, um, there is some reference to um, D.L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute, the Scofield Reference Bible, and Dallas Theological Seminary. Yep. Um, D.L. Moody, founder of Moody Bible Institute, he w- really helped popularize this view here in America, as well as in England on his evangelistic tours there. Moody Bible Institute and Dallas Theological Seminary are to this day um, established, not the only ones, but they're, they're major um, established dispensational um, schools. And to this day, faculty at Moody Bible Institute need to sign um, a statement in order to teach there of faith and part of that statement is that they hold to a dispensational reading of scripture um i i it's not like every class we're learning we're reading left behind and learning about the rapture <laughs> can you imagine um, that i left actually behind class i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> honestly i actually felt i always felt like i was waiting for them to tell me why i should be dispensational. Since it is so important to to the school's history as well as um, just the it's it's part of the required theology of mm-hmm. the professors, um, and I, by the time I got to the end, I was kind of disappointed that I, I never really got the like nitty gritty explanation of what dispensationalism is, what it's all about, and why it's right. Well, here, you bits know what and I pieces think? would come out. I don't know if it was just the particular professors I took or if it's just whatever, um, but I but I, I, don't know if your experience was different, but I never got like wholesale, this is what dispensationalism is and why it, it is what it is. Right. It, it, I got more like little bits and pieces would come out depending on the conversation at, at hand. Well, I, th- I think I sense.
1: definitely, my biggest, my biggest dive into it, I think definitely came in Wexler, um, his class Bible intro. Um, but one, one thing that I've noticed, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I've, I've often wondered why this is the case um, for, for, you know, we've, we've, we joked in a previous episode that Moody is the, the Harvard of Bible colleges. Um, but what's ironic about that to me is even with Moody's storied history, and it's, you know importance in chicago but also just in you know moody publishing like moody's kind of a big deal it's not just your tiny little bible college but i feel like the professors there are some of the most like unknown scholars in academia i i could be misinformed on that but like when i when when i'm looking at evangelical twitter or um you know looking at you know different journals and just the the sphere of, of theological writing in my mind like even though there are some brilliant, brilliant men and women, I'm thinking like, you know, Peterman, Schmutzer, Wexler, um, like there are some big names, but like, no, it's not like, you know, D.A. Carson, um, uh, you know, uh, Andreas Kirstenberger or, um, you know, Tom Schreiner. Like those are some like big names in academic theology, but almost never are these moody people brought up. And I think either that's one because they have to espouse at least for the sake of their job, some sort of dispensational theology whether they hold to it actually or not um but i'm curious if people don't take them as seriously theologically because dispensationalism is just a little wacky that's just my like as i've sort of thought through (laughs) why that is i don't know if you have like a similar thought or if i'm just you know incorrect in that assessment but
0: yeah no i don't i don't really know i mean i i know do you agree that they're not very like
1: popular like in a I, I, think, wide it, I range? think it
0: depends I mean I, I think it depends on the context like um, places like like Jets the, the journal of Evangel- of the Eva- journal of the Evangelical theological Society um, there, there's a lot of moody professors that are involved with ETS at, at various ways including publishing with them um, a lot of the like you know I know I know like during towards the end of of my moody career I at least one professor was like in the middle of publishing a commentary mm. i know other professors who like i'm thinking particularly of Doc, dr wexler um who he does a lot of work just in, in fields that are like in medieval jewish studies right right and, right and language studies of of languages that i haven't even heard of like so it's just like but, on, um, like the, but like on the popular is, is, level, like, if I mean, you went to, he, like, down the
1: street, if you mentioned, you know, D.A. Carson, I think a lot of people would be like, I at least have heard of him. But if you said,
0: you know, Dr. Wexler, you know, Dr. Peterman, yeah, unless I you mean,
1: are a moody person,
0: you're probably, like... uh The thing, too, is, like, Wexler's published by Brill, so there's no... Right. There's no joking around there. Like, it, like that's beyond legit. It, right, it, that's but true. But that's not a popular level publishing house they don't publish um popular books and and i say popular as in popular level and that's just what so i think there's there's a little i think it really depends on the gotcha on the professor that was a and,
1: completely and, random sidebar i apologize for all our listeners no no but i think it's it's it interesting
0: relate. to to just note how significant moody is for being dispensational i mean Literally, like I said, I'm not exaggerating that I can't think of a single article, book, or um, section of, of a book or or, or uh, dictionary entry that I've read on dispensationalism that doesn't mention Moody Bible Institute by name. I know. Um, yeah. And what I think what that shows is is how specific dispensational theology is, but also how big a role MBI has played historically in the that movement and right. so yep. without further ado dispensationalism like i said it's it's a framework for reading scripture so history is divided into these different dispensations maybe there's seven or eight or three it it, it depends on how on a different on different varieties like how exactly this all plays out but in general what what we're looking at is Um, these different historical periods called dispensations where God interacts differently with his people in each dispensation. So the easiest way for me to think about this is um, in the dispensation that was in the Old Testament, Jewish believers were responsible for sacrificing according to the law at the temple. Um, In the dispensation that came after Christ, you know, those things are no longer how God relates to His people. We are no longer responsible for um, animal sacrifice or worship according to Levitical law, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and a big piece of that plays plays out in the end times. Like I said, left behind. That's the chron- that's the chronology. <laughs> um, and the chronology with historic premillennialism is is very similar, if not identical, to most dispensational positions on the end times in the millennium um, one thing that is a, is a big deal with just with both popular just in general popular thought in America but also it comes from dispensationalism is prior to I'm sorry um, no yeah yeah <laughs> I sorry I was reading my notes wrong prior to um, the seven year tribulation there's a rapture of the church of the believers in the world meaning they are sort of taken they're vanished away and taken up into heaven um and and then there is seven-year tribulation and then jesus comes back at the end of that um that's I, i believe basically a unique position um at least the way it plays out within dispensationalism and um you know we've mentioned moody dallas theological seminary um John Nelson Darby was a guy in the 1800s who started. Basic, you know, it's a little more complicated, but you know, summarizing, he he basically started this way of reading scripture and and popularized it. Um, and it's it spread especially in America through the Schofield Reference Bible, um, which was a Bible that, I believe Moody published, that um, contain it was a study Bible and the notes were written from he from Schofield was dispensationalist so that Mm -hmm. that was became a very very popular it uh, still is like it's I can't believe yeah yeah um and so those notes really helped to get the message out in a in a very like broad level um which is which is how it is I mean that's not really good or bad it just kind of is um and some some other distinctives of dispensational theology that are, are really important to bring up but aren't necessarily directly you know about the millennium itself um is there's this i there's this very sharp depending on how you want to word it distinction or a divide between Israel and the church mm-hmm. so um i mean and and i don't I don't want to overstate that but I also don't want to understate it because I have literally read dispensational things where the church is referred to as an afterthought um where because god's people israel rejected christ god kind of turned to the gentiles as sort of like a I guess i like like, with
1: you guys now
0: almost like a plan b um you know and then we get back to the end times when the end times come the church is raptured that's where you have this this great big uh, conversion of Israel. God kind of returns to dealing with Israel as his people. Um, yeah.
1: Problematic for like a lot of reasons.
0: <laughs> and there's, there are some other weird things where, so like the church is raptured, you know, Jesus comes and gets the church. Then there's a seven year tribulation. Then Jesus comes back. So it's like, there's two, there's two Let's returns a second and a third coming. of Christ. Um you know how many resurrections are there like there there's a lot of these things that come up the the more the more detailed you get yep that are kind of interesting you know like the rapture is you know like i think of in left behind like every you know like all of a sudden in the twinkling you, of you an know, eye the know. the pilot of the of the plane his clothes are just in a pile on the ground and he's just gone you know it's it's the secret like a the rapture is a secret event like a thief in the night comes from scripture yep what's interesting too is like what does that mean because you know christ's return is is described as being a very public event like the shout of an archangel and the trumpet blast and then you know like I, you know i remember learning that like well jesus coming for the rapture that's not jesus's sec- second coming that's not the return of christ that that's a separate event um or the return of christ refers to this thing overall and it, like, there are different ways of explaining it. And like I said, there's different varieties of dispensationalism. Um, but it's really interesting to sort of when you start getting into the nitty gritty, it's a pretty, it's a very complex system. And you see that with with the end times. But it's it's also complex through and through. Just the way you read scripture overall, I I, I think I have some really 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 big problems and hesitations and concerns around this really sharp divide between Israel and the church same and around a lot of these details with how things play out in the end times in terms of um christ's return and and, and whatnot and the resurrection and and all of that kind of and the glorification of of believers it, it's it's interesting um well like, what it doesn't my... it doesn't sit super great
1: yeah and i i it's it's funny because I don't know if you have this memory or not um one of the first times that we double dated as a couple you know you and you and elaine and me and hannah we went to olive garden and do you yeah, remember having a conversation there um about like eschatology and like so this is this is my I first don't. year at moody's so like i'm I'm thoroughly you know being ingrained like i said with with Docs, dr wexler in um in in, in bible intro and like I, I just remember it, it, they make a lot of like really compelling points. I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily saying I agree with them. Um, but like there like you mentioned like with this distinction between Israel and the church, there is this it, it's a very, um, especially within like messianic Jews, like so Jewish people who become Christians, there is that like there's this very like real, like longing and yearning for these people to know Christ because they're the ones who had the law, the the promise the you know, the law of Abraham or the law of Moses, the, the covenants of Abraham. Um, so there's this yearning for the people to know God, to be reconciled to him, to, to come to Christ. But like, th- there just seem to be like so many inconsistencies and it, there's too many to name, but like, uh, like what, who did Jesus die for? Why did he come? Um, you Know if God is sovereign, if He's all powerful, why would He be like, why would the church be plan B? Why couldn't He just, you know, do His work in His people? Um, you know, the, I, so all that to say, like, I remember being in those classes and like somewhat embracing it because it just sounded new and interesting, but also being like, how does that make sense? Like, I don't understand, like when people would talk about like the future restoration of Israel, ethnic mm-hmm. national Israel, I was like, I just don't see that biblically. I just don't like see that in the Bible that there's going to be like two peoples of God. And that's really what it is, is that there are two peoples of God. There's ethnic national Israel who is God's people in the old Testament and who will be, who will be restored to that status. And then there's, you know, maybe if you want to call it plan B or if you just want to call it the other people, which is made up of Gentiles and Jews. I mean, Paul was a, paul is a jew (laughs) you know like so is he it's just i never quite understood how to deal with it and so like now having been you know distanced from moody having like done more actual study on my own because prior to moody i could not have told you anything like i remember listening to a sermon series as a kid in revelation and just being like that's a bunch of mumbo mumbo jumbo (laughs) end times left behind nonsense um but like Now, like I said, I have a deeper appreciation for revelation and for eschatology, um, having been distanced from dispensationalism. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really interesting to to dive into, and it's really interesting to to think about how... (sighs) I'm going to get my patristics hat on. How new dispensationalism is, I think, ought to engender a little bit of healthy... Skepticism, not yes, because please. not because new equals bad and old equals good, but it dispensational premillennialism is a new doctrine, a new yep. way of doing theology, a new uh, an enti- It's a complete innovation. Did you um, say? In, did you say when John 1800s. Nelson Darby lived?
1: Like what? Do yeah, you know exactly?
0: It, I don't remember exact.
1: The only the only reason I ask is because our, our great school, the school that D. L. Moody founded, was founded in eighteen eighty-six. Yeah. So like if it's in that time period early we're just to talking about like mid eighteen
0: hundreds. Okay. So we're yeah. talking
1: about a theology that has only existed since our Bible college was founded. Not not even two generations have fully passed, maybe maybe two have passed, but like not many generations, full generations have passed since that time.
0: Yeah, and again, why it's sort of like, nah, I don't want nah. The point is it <laughs> something that's so innovative and new. Um what you're saying is the first what? 1,700, 1800 years of church history completely got it wrong. There were some people who got it like the problem too is like nobody you can't go find a church father or a medieval theologian or a reformer Who teaches dispensationalism like not even one that is just like he got it right his buddies got it wrong like and you know it's it's like maybe this is a future episode it's like uh it's like reformed people on uh it's like reformed presbyterians on presbyterianism sorry like you can't say that presbyterianism is the form of church government divinely ordained in scripture and then say it disappeared for 1,500 years until Calvin in Geneva. It doesn't make right. any sense, you know? Right. Um, and again, old doesn't equal good or right. If I thought that, I wouldn't be a Protestant. <laughs> um, and new doesn't equal bad or wrong. But what I'm trying to say is like it's interesting to just look at there's this whole elaborate system that's new, and so it, what that does to me, what I think it should do for all Christians is make us pause and evaluate and mm-hmm. just be careful to be like, why is this new? What does that mean that it's new? Because there are things that, that every generation has to say that are, that are great and helpful and true. There's nothing, there's no theological innovation that is good. I think is a statement I'm comfortable saying because if it's real, if it's true, if it's if it's the apostolic faith, it's in Scripture. And whether or not everybody got it right all the time, it's in the tradition. It is is where I would fall. And and um, dispensationalism doesn't doesn't do that. And the reason that I reject it isn't because it's new. It's because there are some really big issues with it theologically as well as exegetically, but even just theologically, just like what it means to have a, a sharp divide between Israel and the church. is it, it does some funky things to other doctrines and other yeah. areas of, of, of scripture. So that's dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennial, premillennialism. They both share specifically a view in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth in the end times. Um, yeah. Can we
1: pause real quick? Yeah. Three, two, one. I'm stopping my recording.
0: One, two, three. So having talked about pr- both kinds, both major kinds of premillennialism, let's talk a little bit about post Um, is that kind of like post-Malone? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Just, I don't know. I haven't talked sorry. to him. Um, <laughs> the, you know, sort of like pre-mill, pre-millennium, Christ will return post-millennium. So Christ returns after the millennium. But wait, how can Christ return after the thousand years that he reigns on earth? Well, the oh, millennium question. in this view is a figurative, well, it yeah, it's it's a figurative millennium. It's not that Christ isn't really reigning, it's not that that's a metaphor, but it's that the the millennium, meaning a 1,000 year period on earth, is a metaphor or a figure of speech. Um, and Christ's reign... Or it's spiritual, he, right. it's not like physical, right. he's not on Christ's earth. Christ's reign is in the church versus it being a a physical, political monarchy centered in a city on earth. It is Christ right. reigning in his church, um, which if you listen to an earlier episode, we've already kind of established is Mount Zion and the kingdom of God. So it kind of fits nicely. Um, as opposed to go. the literal thousand years, the millennium is um, it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a long period of time, basically. And so specifically a period of time in between Christ's ascension and his return um which that as we'll see in a little bit is is pretty much the same as millennialism in terms of what the millennium is um, what what kind of separates postmillennialism from amillennialism, at least it, at least in like some more traditional like major po- types of postmillennialism is this it often postmillennialism includes this idea of this progressive improvement of the quality of the world Um, specifically not even almost but literally an increased increasingly Christianized world until eventually whatever you know however long whatever it looks like we eventually get to the point where um, most of or all of the world has been evangelized and most people are Christians and this ushers in something of a of a golden age where there's less evil, not no evil, but there's less evil. There's, there's, you know, greater uh, like love and peace between people because we're all or, or mostly all brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, And then after that golden age is when Christ returns. Um, Mm. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of, it as far as like the the basic yeah. uh, you know not to diminish not to like <laughs> you know minimize the theological contributions of post but as far as like defining it that's kind of it and um it was a pretty at, at you know prior to the 20th century with sort of the collapse of any sort of notion of you know secular humanist progression of of the world we look at world war one we look at world war two the atrocities of the holocaust and all the conflict and life that was lost in the 20th century it kind of i think made it difficult for people to hold to this idea that things are going to get better and better and better because in the 1800s and 1700s when this view was especially popular it was it, quite frankly it's but here in the west it was really easy to look around and say hey we look at history. We look at today. Things are getting better. There's more, you know, society is yep. getting better. The world is getting better. Technology is getting better. Um, and I think that that particular... I don't even know if you'd consider that a doctrine within post-millennialism or, or if it's more just sort of a tendency to view things that way is really where I think it falls apart. Not that I don't think more right. and more people are going to be Christians. I mean, more there are more Christians today than at any point in human history. Um, I'm pretty sure more, but there's also just, yeah, more I'm pretty sure more Christians point. are alive today than <laughs> at any, than at all times of history combined, because the world is so much bigger. Right. And, and I'm not trying to diminish that. That's, that's wonderful. The church is growing. It's exploding yeah. in places where it's, where it's often persecuted and restrained, but um, to, to, to slide into sort of a maybe overly optimistic view of what the world will look like prior to Christ's return or um, to sort of just view history in a more linear, like, upward trend, I think, as a weakness when it, yeah, it, it's just not necessarily realistic. It doesn't seem to be.
1: Well, not only that, right, and not not only that, I mean, that's a very valid point, but on the other side, you could almost argue that, like, it's a little unfair, not that like, that's what I mean, what I mean by that, not just, oh, that's so unfair. I don't mean to sound like an eight-year-old. Um, I'm trying to say like, when you think about if, if when, if, when Christ is about to come, if much, if not most of the world is Christian, like, I know that's not universalism because there's, you know, been a 2000 years or however much longer between those periods of time. But like, what, what I'm trying to say is like, what what is it about that period of time that suddenly allows it to progress to a point where it gets so christianized why is so much of the world saved um when at other points in history there hasn't been that that well, same I th- experience? I think it's just the
0: continued I, I spread of the gospel about... i mean if you look at parts of the world today where in the you know in you know in 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 like you know the middle ages there there wasn't you know widespread missionary efforts into like central africa you know what i mean yeah. but like that over the course That's of history true. changed as you know among other things just just part of part of what has happened through history is and, and is continuing today is is just i think fairly objectively i mean the gospel is going to all corners of the earth like there are people groups who still haven't yeah. heard there are languages that still don't have the scriptures translated into them like i'm not saying that the work is done but like i don't i mean nobody's saying the work is done but I, I i think that that's sort of there's nothing special i think it's just sort of over time this this it's just the culmination, culmination of, of this process of, of of evangelization <laughs> and christianization it, it, at least it's my understanding is just sort of you know that's just the expectation of, of what, how history w- I, would or could progress, I guess.
1: And it's, it's funny. Cause I've heard um, people say like, I really want to be a post millennial. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just like, if, if we're trying to be faithful to scripture, they, they just, they think that they can't be. And I, I think I would have to say the same thing. And like, I want to be post mill. I want to be like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Like to, to see the gospel go to the reach, reaching far, far and wide. And to see, um, you know, a world that is very, you know, Christianized and, and very um, evangelized. But I just, I don't, I I just can't see that being the case. If we're talking about if or most, which I think is maybe one extreme end of the spectrum. I know that there are people who say that, that it will be most, if not all. Um, but I just, I can't, in my mind, I can just, I, with the way, like you're saying, like the way the
0: world is, I just cannot see that being the case. But yeah, I mean, who knows, you know. We, you know, it kind of, kind of. The jury's still out on, on that one in terms of, just, <laughs> you know, the data. But as far as, um, looking at, different ways of e- explaining the millennium, um, that brings us to the last, like, major, one, which bump, would be bump, amillennialism millennialism or a mill, for short. <laughs> um, and you have a lot you're way more informed on this so you did you sort of wrote this section so um we ended up talking about these other sections for a lot longer than I expected to which is cool I feel like I feel like it's, it's such a broad conversation like I knew we were doing very like sort of bird's eye view conversation and even that took a lot longer than I was expecting because there's just so much to do to, I don't feel like right. we've you know I want to reiterate we're, we're not experts in but beyond that I, I don't feel like I've done any of the views justice in the sense of like really getting <laughs> right. into here's what people believe and here's why they believe it and here's what that means. And I think that the only way to do that is to spend time with writers who are, you know, advocating these views. Um, these and, camps. you know, that's always yeah. going to be the case no matter what we talk about or, or how long we talk about it. But just to reiterate, like, it's just such an interesting conversation, and it, I'm, you know, I'm excited to to wrap it up with diving into amillennialism. millennialism. So why don't you take it away? Right.
1: And I will, you know, there's we're we're caught in a world between brevity and eternity. Things that are temporal, things that will last forever. And uh, I promise you that I will not have an <laughs> eternal, um, you know, amount of time pass here. It's gonna be. I'm gonna do my best to keep it brief. Um, so. Like I said a little bit a little bit ago, um, I am I, greatly indebted to Sam Storms' book um, Kingdom Come, which is him presenting the amillennial perspective on and times on the millennium, what it means, and it's interesting because Sam Storms is uh, you mentioned Dallas Theological Seminary. He is a graduate of Dallas, and it was at Dallas where he became amillennial, um, which was a very difficult thing to do at that time when he was there it was like you were the black sheep um which it's just interesting seeing him you know in his intro sort of mention those things um but personally when i you know like i mentioned you know my time at moody you know i've mentioned too after moody is when i became a youth pastor and it's interesting it's in becoming a youth pastor um having kids at youth group so I, i sent out a survey that was like, you know, what books of the Bible do you want to learn about? What topics are you, you know, interested in? Like stuff like that, just to get a gauge on where they were. And just like, I'm sure this would be like if you sent a survey to any church, a lot of people are like revelation and times because it's just, it's so fascinating to us because on one hand, it's, it's almost like, I mean, it is prophecy. It's in a way it's seeing into the future, which, you know, especially in a world that is, you know, plagued with riots and shooting and murder, um, sin and death. Like it can be really cathartic to like think about what's to come. And it's, it's in being a youth pastor that, like I said, I really wanted to do a sermon series on revelation, but I kept telling myself, I am not ready. I am not ready. I, I cannot like, just like you're saying, I cannot do it justice. I am not that smart, but like I wanted to start going down that road of exploring the different perspectives. I I, I was Pretty ingrained in dispensationalism because of Moody. I thought I knew that pretty well. So I was like, I'm going to start going um, to evaluate the other perspectives. And I came across this book and Amillennialism. Um, also, you know, becoming more reformed, I was curious, like, what is the traditional reformed view? And, you know, seeing that a lot of reformed people are Amill and postmill, I was like, well, maybe I'll start there. Um, so this book is a really, really long book. It's like 800 pages or something, but it's worth reading. It is so good. Um, he does a really good job of going into great detail and depth on some really difficult conversations, not because they're like challenging, um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily convicting, but they're very difficult to conceptually and cognitively explore. Um, so, without any further ado, I have this like summary of amillennialism that comes from monergism.org or.com. Um, they say that amul- amillennialists believe that there is uh, there will be no future thousand year period of time when the kingdom of God will be visibly flourishing in the world and the whole earth will be fruitful and at peace. Um, speaking symbolically, like the rest of Revelation, the millennium the millennium is simply a figurative way of speaking of a long period of time that is taking place after Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God with his re- resurrection. So, am- amillennialists believe that Revelation twenty is one. Of a series of visions, um, each of which describes the entire period of time between Christ's first and second coming. So between his resurrection and his ascension um, uh, between his ascension and his um, second coming. And so the millennium the millennial kingdom is taking place right now. So we are in the millennium. Um, the millennium. I keep <laughs> this is why I'm saying Amel, because it's just I keep tripping up. Um, but millennium. Um, so we're in it right now. Um, Satan has been bound by Christ's work on the cross so that he can no longer hold, um, the nations in deception and believers who, who seem to be persecuted and afflicted are really reigning with Christ spiritually, um, and causing his kingdom, which does not now, it's not visible, but it's, it's spreading to every corner of the earth. So there is a, there is a difference of opinion, um, in amillennial interpretation over, um, you know, are, are the believers reigning? uh, Is it the ones who are alive who are reigning or the ones who are deceased and in the presence of the Lord? That is one place where amillennialism has some disagreement, but, um, we sort of mentioned that this, this term ah millennialism stands for like no millennial millennium, which isn't a hundred percent accurate or fair. Um, because they believe that there is a millennium. They just don't see it as a literal 1000 year period of time, that is going to happen in the future yeah. because we And it's kind of worth
0: noting it. too that originally like a millennialism was a pejorative term used to sort of like, right. Oh, you don't believe in the millennium. Like, and it's just sort of right. like so many other terms that are like that, like Christian, um, it, it has sort of just t- come to be, you know, the standard way of, of, you know, referring to that position. Right.
1: Right. So like the Amillennialist the basically believes that when Christ ascended, you know, when his church was inaugurated, that this began this millennium, this thousand year reign, um, which, you know, when we go to Revelation 20, you know, it's, it's, it's talking about Satan being thrown in this pit, um, not being able to deceive the nations. Um, you know, he says, I saw the thrones and them seated on them, um, you know, talking about those who did not receive the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Um, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So where, where someone has taken this very literally, you know, so like our dispensational friends, um, see this revelation 20 as being like, this is something that's literal. That's going to happen in the future. Like that's the only way that they can see this happening. Cause obviously we're not ruling and reigning physically with Christ yet. Uh, the amillennialist sees this as figurative as Christ is in heaven with the father. We are reigning with him. The gospel is advancing. Um, and so, in, in one sense, um, amillennialists believe that um, Revelation 20 is more fully understood. So we have Rev 20 um, and John 5, both of which are written by the same author, John. Um, so when we, read, when we read John 5, we, we see two resurrections are also being spoken of, one that is spiritual and one that is physical. And we'll get to John 5 in a little bit, but it speaks of um, you know, being raised and then another time of being raised, and, and what, what the Amillennialist says is that the first one is um, new birth, being born again. That is a resurrection of the dead, and then at the end of time, the final resurrection where we are glorified. But if you're just reading it, it might not be obvious in the passage that that's what's going on, but that's what what one would believe um and so it reveals that when christ returns to judge the earth the resurrection of the wicked and the righteous occur simultaneously so where you were mentioning there's some like really weird stuff with dispensational theology of like there is a rapture and then the seven year great great tribulation and then like he comes like another time is that his third time like there's some like you know differing opinion there the amillennialist says that like we're in the we're in a millennium right now even though it's not a literal 1000 years because obviously obviously it's been like you know almost 2000 years since Christ left the earth um you know in once this time passes who we don't know when it's going to end but when it does there will be a resurrection of the living and the dead and it's going to occur and then once that happens that is the end the new heavens and the new earth come there isn't going to be this you know further period um, so I'm just going to get into some some distinctives now. That was sort of like the general overview that, like I said, came from uh, monergism.com, this website. So now I'm just going to give some, um, maybe some helpful clarifiers and just some, like I said, distinctives of the Amil perspective. So um, Amillennialism best accounts for the many texts in which Israel's Old Testament prophetic hope is portrayed as being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus and the believing remnant, which is his body or the church. Um, so contrary to all forms of dispensationalism, the fulfillment of the Old tu- Old Testament covenant promises is not to be found in the restoration of national ethnic Israel in a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth, but in the king himself and his covenant people, the church, the true Israel of God. So if we're going to quote Galatians six sixteen, Paul refers to the church as the true Israel of God. So the promises that were made to Abraham and his offspring. So the fact that Abraham would have offspring, that he would have a land, that he would be a blessing, those promises, Jesus himself is the one who fulfills those things. You know, Galatians 3.29, again, Paul says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So where the dispensational sees, again, dispensations, these different epochs, these different periods of time, God acting differently. Um, The amillennialist sees like, no, like when, when God was making those promises to Abraham, that wasn't of like a future people, a future land, a future blessing. It was like, this is Christ, the old Testament, everything in the old Testament is pointing to Christ and Christ's mission in coming. Um, and so again, that mission would be to, to, um, you know, to, to, to bring the world back to the way that it was supposed to be. Um, that's why even though we're talking about end times a little bit, we're talking about the millennium, this is, we're talking about like scripture as a whole, what it means that um, God created, um, what the purpose of creation was, you know, we, we fell and what is God's plan with restoring. Um, so, so moving on, uh, amillennialism is superior for understanding redemptive history insofar as it alone is consistent with the New Testament testimony concerning the termination of physical death at the time of the second coming of Christ. So one of the problems again, that dispensationalism has is that if Christ comes, if he, you know, if there's the rapture um, or let's just, let's just talk about the thousand year reign on earth. What, what is happening during that thousand years? Are people dying? Like you almost have to say that people are dying because they are not yet glorified if they are on the earth. So death is continuing. Natural processes are continuing during this time. But we don't see that anywhere in scripture. In scripture, we see that when Christ comes, all things are consummated. All things are are, are made new. Um, you know, we see Paul is quite clear and to the point in telling us that the end of all physical suffering and human mortality occurs at the time of the resu- resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the body. He says that death will be swallowed up in victory. So no physical death can occur after the second coming. Which again, if you believe that there is a millennium, a a thousand year reign of Christ, a millennium that's going to be a literal thousand years, you have to also believe that there will be death during that time for the people who are still here on the earth. Um, Yet another affirmation of uh, amillennialism is found in the fulfillment of Isaiah 25, 8, where we are told that God will one day wipe away all tears. A prophecy that according to Revelation 21, 1 through 4, comes to fruition when the new heavens and the new earth appear. So if we if we were to read First um, Corinthians fifteen fifty through fifty nine, Paul is essentially saying that this Isaiah passage is fulfilled at the time of the second coming. So there's the Isaiah passage, there's the First Corinthians passage, and Paul is saying that this prophecy that was that Isaiah said is fulfilled when Christ comes, that he will wipe away every tear, that death will be swallowed up in victory. Um, and so the point is simply that the new heavens and the new earth come when Christ does. There isn't going to be a thousand years and then the end. It's going to be imminent. Um, another passage, I'm just going to read it. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. Do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, which is kind of, I do not, this passage was not because of the thousand. I just think it's coincidental that it mentions a thousand years. But a thousand years is also as one day. Uh, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So again, we're talking about the second coming of Christ coming like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the day, um, the coming of the day of God. So it's, you know, this, this passage in second Peter seems to say that like when Christ comes on the day of the Lord, um, when, when all things are said and done, there's going to be an imminent destruction of the physical here and now, and um, the the coming of, of the new, um, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, In addition, uh, amil is also superior to pre-male insofar as the latter view requires one believe that unbelieving men and women will have the opportunity to come to saving faith for at least a thousand years after Christ's return. So if you do believe in a literal thousand year kingdom on the earth, um, again, if, if people have been raptured, if, if, if believers have been rapture, raptured, there are still people in the earth who are unbelievers and the premill dispensational believer would say that like during that time people can still come to faith in christ which implies that again there are people who do not believe um so this again is something that biblically speaking we don't see really any teaching or precedent for like the opportunity to the opportunity to come to christ the opportunity to come to faith in him is now during the church age so to say that there's another period of time to come after part of the church has already been taken seems to be inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture itself if that makes sense. Um, let's see here. Um, another another passage that is, is a big one is second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. Um, where, where Paul says that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to, repl- to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Um, he goes on to say, um, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe, who have believed because our testimony to you was believed to this end. We always pray for you that our God uh, may make you worthy of his calling. um, uh, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And so again, this is a passage that means, That there cannot be a period of a thousand years between Christ's coming and the consummation of all things. Um, So I I know that was sort of rambling, and at this point I've said so much. Um, I have a little bit more to say, but what we're really trying to see is this distinction of when people can come to faith in Christ. um, What is happening now in a a figurative millennium versus a future um, literal millennium? Um, Another thing that that is a difficult explanation for pre-male people is, um, unglorified people in the millennium, because if we read revelation 19 and then go into revelation 20, um, if you read the end of revelation 19, he says he destroys all of his enemies. All of his enemies are cr- are crushed and destroyed. So how can there continue to be unbelievers in a millennium that chapter 20 speaks of, if that makes sense. So if we're reading, if we're purely reading revelation, literally we read 19 and then we read on the 20. It's like if his enemies and unbelievers were destroyed and, and all things were all things came to completion, how then can we even enter into a millennium with unbelieving people? Um, so one way this has been explained, obviously is that we can't read it literally it's not telling a sequence of these are things that are happening in this order but revelation 19 and 20 um, are actually telling the same story but just from different vantage points different perspectives it's reiterating the same point it's just telling the same story in a different way it's not again it's not that you know some literal 1000 years and so I think we've already, we've already read Revelation 20. So I think at this point, it's, it's, it's helpful real quick to read John 5, 25 through 29, because, um, it's that passage that kind of works in conjunction with Revelation 20. Um, so this, these, these couple of verses say, um, if I can find it, of course I, uh, let's see 25 truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the res- resurrection of judgment. So again, this is a passage that seems to be teaching of two separate resurrections and enduring and this figurative millennium um this is where the the first one is the spiritual one where dead people are um born again and then we live in this world and then a future resurrection is coming again where all things will be consummated um so this is again a key a key passage in um in the Amel perspective and lastly the one that is i think made perhaps the most you know helpful in in understanding this is actually the Olivet Discourse, um, where Jesus is teaching at the Mount of Olives. We we find that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. So we see it in a number of places. And what's especially um, important to note here is context, right? When we're reading scripture, context is always important. Um, So when we we come to Matthew 24 in particular, um, what's going on? Well, if you just read some of the headings within your Bible, I don't know what yours say. um, But in in my ESV, um, 24 starts with Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. Um, Then he talks about signs of the end of the age. He talks about the abomination of desolation. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And then he talks about that no one knows that day or that hour. I obviously don't have the time to read through (laughs) all of Matthew 24 here. It'll, It'll just take way too long. Um, But what's happening is Jesus has just had this teaching. Um, He's in Jerusalem. He's at the temple and his disciples, I'll just read the first like, literally two verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away with the disciples. Um, And they came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered, 'Um, you see all these. Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will be um, that will not be thrown away. Um, and so as they're walking away, his disciples ask him, like, um, uh, he says, t- they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? So they're at, they're asking two different questions. It might seem like they're asking one question, but they're actually asking, when is the, when, when are you going, like, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Cause that's what he foretells. He says that not one stone will be left standing. And then they say, when is that coming? Like, what is the sign of your coming or the, the sign of the end? And so this is where the Amil perspective really differs from others. Um, when we think about uh, church history, when we think about the Great Tribulation, the Amil perspective says um, that dr- that the Great Tribulation has already happened. It is a historic fact, something that has um, you know, it happened a long time ago, and I should I should note that this does not mean that there is not going to be tribulation coming in the days ahead, because obviously there's there's great tribulation all over the world even now as we speak. Um, but what what Revelation is specifically teaching us about when it speaks of a great tribulation um, is actually the the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in the year 70 A.D. And this is this is pretty obvious when we read this passage here in Matthew 24, um, because he speaks of, um, you know, he he speaks of the abomination of desolation. He speaks of even saying like, uh, some of you will even be here when this happens. Which, when you think about it, like when people read this as only speaking about the future, like you're almost left to think, well, obviously all of his apostles and disciples are dead now because we're two thousand years removed. So what does he mean when he says that like? some of you will not taste death before these things happen because what he's speaking of is the temple being destroyed, Jerusalem being sacked. Um, and so some are perplexed by, um, you know, verses 29 through 31, um, because they say immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from uh, the end of the earth to the other. So what this is teaching, says a lot of people, is that this is the, the second, you know, this is when Christ's second coming is happening. So, you know, after this tribulation the the heavenly bodies are darkened things are are in disarray and so the son of man comes um, however that is not how the amil person would read this um, because they see the sign as as just that it doesn't say it, it, I mean if you read if you literally read it it says then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man it doesn't say that the son of man appears but a sign and so what what the amil person says is, this teaches is that this isn't referring to the second coming, but it actually refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So the sign of the son of man is him being enthroned and vindicated in heaven. So when we think about what the temple destruction would have signified, if we think about what Jerusalem being destroyed would have signified, it, it's really signifying that Jesus is in heaven. He is exalted. He's vindicated and enthroned at God's right hand. And so again, this is where we would differ heavily with this, the dispensationals because the dispensational sees two peoples of God, you know, it sees, it sees Israel and it sees um, the church because the Amil perspective sees one people of God, one new man created both of Jew and Gentile. Um, because they see that the destruction of the temple is the doing away with all of the old covenant, like dead religion. So to see Jerusalem destroyed, to see the temple destroyed would be to say that now this, this great tribulation that has occurred, this, you know, horrendous things happened when, when these things occurred in 70 AD, no matter what you think about them eschatologically, like people were murdered, um, taken off into slavery. Things were, like literally ransacked, raped and pillaged. Um, but if we think about that as the great tribulation, it was the sign that like these, the, the old things have passed away and, and new things have come. This, this new kingdom of God has been um, inaugurated and now we are in that millennium. And so when it, you know, Jesus shifts what he's speaking of, because he, he, he was talking about the destruction of the temple he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And that, that was in answer to their first question. When will these things be that you were talking about Jesus? But then they also asked him, when will you be coming? Like, when will the end of all things happen? And that's where he ends this Olivet Discourse um, by saying, no one knows the day or the hour. No one, like, Not even the son. Only the father knows when when all things will come to completion, when all things will be consummated. And so this, again this, this is an example too, because a lot of people that live in, you know, dispensational circles, um, they like to look out into the world and almost like read current events into revelation. You know, right now there's a bunch of memes I keep seeing on Twitter of like, they're like, you know, looking out my window at like what, what chapter of revelation are we living out today? Um, you know, with just all the crazy things going on in the world. Um, but the problem is that the way that people think of those events, they see those as like ear markers. Like, so let's just, let's just say it's 9-11 or let's say it's, um, you know, these riots or, um, you know, people being murdered as if we see those things as being signposts that the end is coming, that would be inconsistent with what Jesus himself said. No one knows. No one can anticipate it. It's going to come like a thief in the night. That's like, there's nothing that's going to be marking it. And here's the thing. This is this is my biggest frustration with the West with um especially an American mindset. Um we have been so comfortable, we have been so blessed, we have been so um just like <laughs> Sorry, when I spoke of bats earlier, I could have sworn I heard something. It's just my cat. I just got freaked <laughs> out. um, <laughs> um sorry and i'm distracted so when we what really frustrates me about again about the west is this arrogance that we have you know i'm thinking of friends family members people that i know on social media that are looking for signs of the end times saying we're we're living in the end well here's the thing first of all if you just take human history into account People could have been saying that for thousands of years. I mean, like, a frickin' bubonic plague ripped through the world and literally killed, like, one-third of the population, if not more. And if that wasn't, like, whoa, the end of days, I don't know what else would have been. Or, let's see, World War I, um, World War Two, a holocaust, Vietnam, like, there are just, like, people see these and have been seeing these for years as like man the end is so close i mean y2k like the computers are <laughs> going to crash the thing is these are not the the problem i have especially as people see us working towards a great tribulation to come which i'm not saying that things aren't going to get worse it's possible that they will i think the great tribulation was the destruction of the temple in jerusalem in 70 ad um but the problem is is like when, when, when we as Americans speak of like the world getting worse and worse and worse, and then the end will come. I just, that I think that's pretty arrogant, especially considering our brothers and sisters all around the world who are already living in great tribulation. Um, to say that, and our brothers and sisters throughout church history, they have lived through the Roman Colosseum. They have lived through um, persecution, martyrdom. I mean, like, it's just, it's not it's not a fair stance. It's not a consistent stance biblically. Um, and, and again, I, I feel like I have not done justice to amillennialism. I, I don't even know if you've been following any of what I've been saying here. Um, if you really, really want a good in-depth understanding of what Amil is like pick up Sam Storm's book. I highly recommend kingdom come because again, he does a much better job explaining these things than I do. Um, I think just the, the last thing I'll say just to kind of help you understand, amillennialism is give you a timeline. So this is this is the the Amil timeline. So there's Christ's work on the cross, his, his death, burial, resurrection. This was the inauguration of the kingdom of God, meaning it is the beginning of God's kingdom. Um, it's here that we see the creation of the church. So in in Acts with Pentecost, the church is established and it's comprised of both Jews and Gentiles who are believers. This is the one new man, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. So we are now living in the millennium, figuratively speaking. Um, Satan has been bound and he's kept from further deceiving the nations, even though he still has power. And I, I didn't touch on this part yet, but what this means is that like in the past, when Satan had the ability to deceive the nations, um, he no longer has that same ability, or power. He has been kept from being able to do so because when we read this Olivet discourse, um, when we read Revelation 20, when we read these passages, when, when, when Satan is loosed, when he is released, what he immediately starts doing is bringing about Armageddon. So what, what, what the binding of Satan means is that God is keeping Satan from bringing the end. Like, God is being patient, God is being gracious in this time, so that the fullness of the Gentiles, or as as John says, the fullness of the elect can come in from the four winds of the world. Um, and so, again, so right now, Satan is bound, not like eternally, it's not that he can't do anything, but he is restrained, so to speak. Um, and so, nearing the end of the millennium, which we don't know when it is, because it's not a literal 1,000 years, it could be another 2,000 years from now, um, Satan will be loosed again. There will be increased persecution. There's going to be oppression in the church. And then the second coming happens. So Jesus at this, at this time, this is when Jesus's second coming happens. There is a rapture. There is a resurrection. Um, there is this, you know, maybe this battle called Armageddon. And immediately, immediately when this happens, when Jesus comes, we see the final judgment and the consummation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth come. And so do, so does the eternal state and so as we've sort of said here there are many 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 considerable disagreements among christians on the subject of the end times i think we can at least safely say that that there's a lot of differing beliefs on this topic but we as believers can certainly unite with the cry come lord jesus come because like this world is a fallen broken sinful world and the the current events are evidence of that for sure and it's especially in seasons right now of great suffering, of great difficulty, of tribulation that we really, I mean, I can't tell you how many times my prayers have been like, Lord, come, 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 come now because things are awful. People are dying. People are um, in an uproar. We need your... <laughs> just, like keep hearing things. The listeners can't see out. Jensen's... Sorry. He
0: doesn't just stop talking. He... he... <laughs> head whips around
1: <laughs> i'm just like there's like i keep hearing noises and i have people live in our downstairs we live in a two flat so i never know what's that what's the cats i'm so sorry this has gone on long enough so we'll wrap it up by, again by saying like no matter where you land i think at the end of the day we need to be careful what we say these things aren't irrelevant these things aren't unimportant it does matter how we think theologically about what's to come how we think theologically about what's happening right now in my estimation biblical prophecy like modern day where people try to look at scripture and say that this passage is speaking of this thing happening i think that's blasphemy i think that's doing a disservice to scripture i think it's um, unwise unhelpful um, misleading almost all the time, if not actually all the time. And we need to be careful because we can be, we can, it can be really damning to people. Um, it can be really, um, harmful and hurtful to, to speak in that way. Because again, I think it's a little bit of arrogance to say that like now we're finally entering into the, the end times because of what's going on around us, because I think it does a disservice, um, to the horrendous things that people endured for thousands of years prior to this. Um, I don't know. I'm curious what your final thoughts are, if you have anything you want to say about the Amil perspective. No, yeah. I mean,
0: it's 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 a lot. Like we've already said a few times, just to cover everything is impossible. But um, there's so much here to dive into for, for everything. And definitely, you know, some strong words there at the end. But I think that we want to n- not <laughs> intend to be, you know, belligerent or to say that, you know, any specific view or position on the millennium or the end times, you know, like calling you specifically out as some sort of terrible person or sub-Christian. Like that's not at all the tone we were trying to go for as much as just to highlight the variety as well as sort of a little bit of, you know, what we're looking at when we look at this in scripture and what, what's important to keep in mind and when we're looking at thinking through theologically scripturally what the end times looks like um yeah i mean i right. just again for the last time it's a lot so keep keep you know diving into this maybe we'll revisit this topic at some point we'll see
1: i think we'll have to
0: so if you want to close this out um i think it's yeah.
1: yeah and it's i found a fitting one in the, in the very few moments that we had before recording to uh to use so again from the valley of vision heaven desired. Lord, may I arrive where means of grace cease and I need no more to fast, to pray, to weep, to watch, to be tempted, attend preaching and sacrament where nothing defiles, where uh, where there is no grief, sorrow, sin, death, separation, tears, pale-faced, languid body, aching joints, feeble infancy, Uh, Decrepit age, peccant humors, uh, pining sickness, gripping fears, consuming cares. Uh, Where is personal completeness? Where we will be perfect in your sight and more beautiful uh, than ever before, and more perfect the appetite, the sweeter the food, the more musical the ear, the more pleasant the melody, the more complete the soul, the more happy its joys. Where is full knowledge of Thee? Here I am an ant, and as I view a nest of ants, so dost Thou view me and my fellow creatures. But as an ant knows not me, my nature, my thoughts, so here I cannot know thee clearly. But there I shall be near to thee, dwell with you in thy family, stand in thy presence, be an heir of thy kingdom as the spouse of Christ, as a member of his body, one with him who is with thee, and exercise all my, uh, my powers of body and soul in the enjoyment of thee. As praise in the mouth of thy saints is comely, So teach me to exercise this divine gift when I pray, read, hear, see, and do to do so in the presence of people and of my enemies as I hope to praise Thee eternally hereafter. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for going on with us on this ride through the millennium, and thank you for listening to... um, this as well as any other episodes of the doxology podcast and if you'd like to connect with us you can hit us up on twitter or instagram at doxology podcast or email us at doxology at gmail.com we'd love to hear your feedback questions episode ideas um, sign up for the newsletter to get updates on episodes that are coming out not spammy updates just just brief uh reasonable updates uh and yeah we'd love to hear from you on um, today's topic especially if you've got resources or or places to, to continue the conversation or um, anything else that you'd like to say in response or pushback feel free to send us your uh, critiques yeah, as yeah. well alright thanks for listening and we'll catch you guys later peace